This was Miami Vice before Miami Vice was cool. <laughs> yeah. And and we arrested him and all that. And um, when I was transferred and hired by DEA to go to France because of my, they needed a French-speaking agent, fluent French-speaking agent, not State Department uh, uh, French. And that's how they had put out a notice uh, that they find us a fluent French-speaking agent who has narcotics experience to go work on the French connection. And uh, because uh, Nixon... What year was this? This was in 1973. So that the French connection you're talking about there, how in time is that the same? Because the movie with uh, Gene Hackman and Popeye Doyle was made before that though, right? Right. Right. Uh, well, uh, no, uh, the movie uh, came out, believe it or not, the movie came out in 73. Uh, uh, I was hired in, uh, I'm sorry, I was hired in 1972. And what happened is uh, I was going to school and uh, uh, taking night courses uh, for my associate uh, police degree. And uh, I got uh, uh, pulled out of class, and uh, they said, uh, we got a call from uh, Mr. Ben Tyson, the director of the, uh, uh, in those days, it had converted over, uh, not yet, it hadn't converted over to BNDD, it was still at, uh, uh, at BN. And uh, Ben, the, we call him the Batman, he was the director of the Miami office, and uh, I mean, quite a guy, he looked like a, a mobster. And uh, it says, he wants you in Miami immediately. So I said, oh, this has got to be important. So I blue lighted my, uh, my car. Uh, I had a, a b blue light, put it on the dash, and off I go to Miami. And it's about almost 9 o'clock at nighttime. And uh, the secretary was downstairs. The office was closed, and, but she was by the door waiting. And she opened the door, and she says, Ben's waiting for you upstairs. And I go upstairs, and the Batman, his nickname was the Batman. Uh, Batman says, Frenchie, sit down and keep your mouth shut. And he goes, get me Washington online now. And they had put out a vacancy announcement, a position announcement, uh, for a French fluent, we need to hire a French fluent speaking agent with narcotic experience to go to France and work on the French connection undercover. And the Batman called Washington says, I got the guy for you. Don't look any further. And uh, so See, I, I'm detecting a habit here. You've never applied for a job. You've just been ordered from one job to another. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so welcome uh, to married life too, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So as as a result, uh, uh, I'm sitting there, and next thing you know, he says, "All right." He says, uh, <clears throat> "In those days, they hired a federal agent as grade five. All right. And uh, he said. Um, uh, uh, he has seven years of major undercover work for us and also for the sheriff's department. And this guy's got a reputation that's unbelievable. And he's your man, but he will not accept a grade five because of his experience, grade nine only. You see, dude, you've already got an agent now too. <laughs> <laughs> All you need now is a publicist. He was my agent. <laughs> Did he get ten percent of everything you make? <laughs> yeah, no, that was uh, as many drinks as he could take down. <laughs> oh yeah, which yeah. ended up being twenty percent of your income. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, uh, they called him back within five minutes, and they says, "Swear him in," and uh, it, it was uh, it was like. Um, 
three months later, I, I was, well, of course, I went through the academy immediately. And three months later, I was in France. And, a brand uh, new DE agent. Yeah, and uh, uh, that was unheard of because if you took a foreign assignment, you had to, uh, Steve, you you know this, uh, you have to have at least more than five years on the job, et cetera. And uh, what happened is uh, you had to go before a board in Washington to be interviewed. Now, I was ordered to go to the board, and Ben told me, he says, okay, we put you in for that position you have to go before a board in D.C., keep your mouth shut and just show up and answer the question. And these were the top dogs of the administration and the deputy administrator sitting as the board director. And I'm sitting there and there's two guys from New York and uh, Ron Provencher and uh, Kevin Affinity. Uh, and these guys had more than five years on the job. And they looked at me and they said, uh, Hi, you know, I'm Kevin, and uh, I'm Ron. And I said, hey, how you doing? He said, uh, you're here for that uh, position in a Paris interview? I said, yeah. I said, I was told to come in, and my uh, my boss in Miami said, you know, uh, put in. How long have you been with us? I said, about six months. They said, what? <laughs> you shouldn't even be here. And I said, I I follow orders, guys. What can I tell you? Hell, I arrested a lieutenant on my first night at work <laughs> and a colonel. Don't, don't let me go high and arrest a general now. Now get out of my way. <laughs> right. So as a result, I went in the board and um, they started asking me a question. And uh, the head of the uh, intelligence bureau, an Italian gentleman, uh, says to me, and he was a hot shot. He says, "Quote unquote." Who in the hell do you think you are? Come in here before us. You've only been on the job for three months. He said, how dare you come up here? You don't even qualify. And I said, sir, I'm here because my boss told me to put in for the job. I follow orders. And I don't mean to insult anybody here, but I came here and, you know, I'm here because you have to interview me. And I was told, you know, to appear. And the director of the board was the uh, deputy administrator of uh, FB, well, BNDD. And now it had switched over to BNDD. And he said, uh, Mr. Charette, would you please step outside for a minute? And I stepped outside. And I could hear the yelling, who in that, his name was Andy Targolino. And he says, who in the hell do you think you are talking to this gentleman like that? He was following orders and you keep your GD mouth shut. You hear me? And that's an order. And I could hear the, the screaming. Next thing you know, the... Uh, Deputy Administrator says, Mr. Charette, come back in. And he says, Mr. Tar Targolino wants to say something to you. And he apologized to me in front of the whole board. I was wrong. I should have never said anything to you like that. And I apologized. Da, da, da. But this is the first time this has ever happened. And uh, But you are fluent in French and all that. And uh, everybody's vouching that you are the man for this job and you got the experience and Mr. Charette, I owe you an apology. 
And I said, you don't have to apologize with me. I said, I can understand how procedures are. And I said, I respect you and I respect the board. Next thing you know, I'm in Paris. Hey, uh, real quick, did you think the apology was sincere or do you think it was because he was ordered to do it? Do you think he really had a change of heart? He was ordered to do it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, did you ever get apologized to anymore in your DEA career? <laughs> yeah. But uh, next thing you know, I uh, here I come into Paris, you know. Well, and uh, let's So let's hold there for a second because I want to kind of set the stage for this too because you've written two books. Yes, sir. And, this, and these books kind of are, we're not going to talk about every case today, but I, I think what we'll do is, I mean, you've got the one, The French Connection, because it, it evokes such strong memories. It's it's romantic on one end, it's action-packed on the other. People think, you know, about The French Connection, The French Connection too. And while this wasn't the same thing, but you've got two books. One's called One Hell of a Ride, The Investigative Under, Undercover Life of a DEA Agent. Then you've got One Hell of a Ride too, from The French Connection to Operation Southern Comfort. So... French connection came first, right? So right. So let's so let's talk about this too. Kind of set the stage for us. They needed you, but what was what was the organization? What was being shipped? What was it that now uh, FBN now BNDD was trying to stop? I mean, obviously it's heroin, right? So who was behind it? What were they doing? Give us a little bit of lay in the land. Okay, what what happened is uh, uh, President Nixon uh, declared uh, uh, in those days declared officially a war on heroin, uh, and uh, said well, just that, before or after he brought Elvis to the White House and made him an honorary <laughs> DEA agent <laughs> during that same time frame. <laughs> so what ha- what happened is that uh, when uh, he declared that. Uh, there was a lot of corruption in France, and the reason why there was so much heroin, uh, French heroin was the most popular heroin and the most pure heroin there was anywhere in the world, made from their labs out of, out of Marseille. And uh, normally, uh, you know, if uh, get Asian heroin and, uh, and all that, Usually the purity was in around 60 to 70 percent. And the French, uh, uh, the, the most famous uh, chemist for the French Corsican mob was uh, Joseph uh, Cesari. And he was the only one that put out from his lab to the Corsican mob to ship to the U.S., to the U.S. mob shipments of cocaine. Ninety-two percent pure heroin. Man, that could lead to a lot of overdoses when people think they're getting the street crap right, and now they're getting something that's one third more strong, one third mm-hmm. stronger. Yeah, well, no, normally the street heroin uh, was cut was, so much, right? Was cut. Uh, you got the, it, they purchased the mob mobster and myself as a Canadian mobster. We would negotiate, and uh, they, usually it was around eighteen thousand dollars a kilo. Okay, uh, in France, and uh, that kilo was let's say ninety six or ninety two percent pure. You can take that and you cut it ten times to reduce the purity and the strength of it, and then by the time it gets to New York, they cut it again ten times to lower it to a street level of around six to five percent. That's what a junkie would be putting in his vein. If you put 92% of the heroin, you're, you're dead, dead on the spot, yeah. right on there. You, you're foaming at the mouth. I've seen it happen. And, and uh, so 
So they were uh, they were the main supplier for heroin for the United States. Uh, and, and at that though, time, rather than cartels, it was organized crime. It was the mob. It was which mob was it coming to in the United States? Uh, the uh, uh, the mob was uh, out in uh, New York. Uh, the Colombo. Uh, uh, <laughs> we should have asked Michael Franz. We just had Michael Franzis uh, mm-hmm. quite a few episodes back. Michael was the only capo regime to walk away from the Colombo crime family and still live. So yeah. <laughs> he, he was doing stuff with taxes. But that's why it was interesting because I don't think people realized at the t- – but that's interesting too because I thought for a while – this was – there was a philosophical debate inside the mobs because we had Dominic Polifron on here. He's the guy who went after Richard Kuklinski. You know, they were looking at dope dealing. There was kind of a philosophical thing. I thought for a long time the mob didn't want to deal with drugs. I mean it was more, hey, they'll do prostitution, racketeering, extortion, but drugs were kind of off limits. Why did that change? Well, uh, they, you know, the, the, there was a debate amongst uh, the uh, organized crime mob in New York and uh, the heads of the uh, the various uh, functions of the mob, and they didn't want to deal with it. the old timers, the, the real, uh, you know, mafia mafioso from Italy. That was a no no. But uh, eventually, they saw that there was a hell of a profit to be made. And uh, so uh, they started getting involved, and finally it was accepted. And so now they had to get the source, and so they made connections uh, through, and that's how the French Connection movie came on. Uh, you know, uh, when it came out in seventy seventy three, uh, Gene Hackman. I was in Paris when it came out. I went to the uh, official uh, uh, showing of the movie. We all and did, did it almost know. blow your uh, entire investigation. Now that they got Popeye Doyle on the case, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Popeye was uh, quite a character. And uh, <laughs> I still remember the one line out of that movie. He's looking at one of the suspects. Did you pick your toes in Poughkeepsie? Did you pick Poughkeepsie. your toes? <laughs> yeah, the prison. <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, a lot of people uh, have a misconception of the French Connection, uh, uh, how the name came about was because of the movie, and the movie made it an even more famous organization. That case was just one case, okay? And it was made in New York, and uh, the story, if you watch the movie, great movie. Gene Hackman played a crazy, beautiful, and, and his uh, partner. Uh, and but it was a single case, and that was the end of the so-called French connection. And the dope in that one, the heroin was hidden in the uh, floor or in, in underneath the uh, floorboard of one of the vehicles they were entering. They had to take the a side. C- a Citroën, yes. A Citroën, yeah. The, yeah. the famous French vehicles that actually yes. all rode around and they tried to kill him in, yes. <laughs> well, that, Pete, that movie with Gene Hackman then, is that based on real events or is that just Hollywood make-believe? No, it was a real it was a real case and all that. And uh, unfortunately, uh, what happened is uh, after the um, uh, arrest t- took down, if you remember the, the scene, the last scene of that movie, very vividly, <laughs> uh, if you remember uh, Gene Hackman, the famous race, underneath the uh, car chase and all that. And then he was trying to apprehend the Frenchman that was there with this shipment. Very dapper-looking gentleman and all that. And then when he got on the uh, subway, Gene Hackman, the doors closed, if you remember that scene. And next thing you know, the Frenchman just gave him a wave, bye-bye, and he disappeared. 
This gentleman was name was Jean Jean G E H A N. It's in my book, and his picture is in there. And I, I still carry uh, till this day in my wallet. I still have his picture, arrest picture, and he was hunted down for years. And I don't want to detract, distract, but he was the head of the Corsican mob and uh, head of the heroin operation for France. And uh, he disappeared. Everybody was looking for him worldwide. And uh, so uh, that case just was there. When I went to France, my orders were, you will work undercover posing as a Canadian mobster you have informants and the corruption that was occurring in France in those days that the narcotics bureau was not doing their jobs properly because they were all corrupted. They were being paid by the Corsican mob, tipping them off on, you know, on what the Americans were doing. Now, what happened, uh, to give you just a quick historical thing, uh, Jack Cusack, who was the director in France for Europe, decided that enough is enough on his own without consent from Washington. He held the press conference. God bless him. Jack was a good friend of mine. And uh, he publicly went on national TV in France and all over Europe and accused the French government of corruption, the Narcotics Bureau, and said, the reason why we have heroin in the United States and the addiction problem and why we're declaring a war on drugs is because you have corrupt cops and we can't get cooperation and they won't act on our information. Well, within 24 hours, he was kicked out of the country. As a result, the French president reorganized and dismantled the Narcotics Bureau, took the head of the robbery squad, a guy by the name of Lemuel, Mr. Lemuel, he was like a father to me. And I admired him and God rest, uh, you know, he retired and got ran over by a truck uh, six months after he had retired and he was one of the best. And his theory was, and he was his boys on his uh, uh, anti-gang uh, squad, uh, if they encountered a robbery going on, there was some shootouts that occurred. People were killed, innocent bystanders. His response was, they shouldn't have been there to begin with. Wow. That's pretty cold-hearted. He was a tough guy. And uh, his guys were honest, with the exception of one of them. And that was one of the biggest cases that I made uh, with my guys and, and all that. And I was going to transport 20 kilos of heroin to, through Montreal, and it was going to be delivered to, and I'll tell you the story, uh, Herbert Sperling. Have you ever heard, uh, Morgan, Herbert Sperling? He was the... Uh, head mobster in New York for the Colombo uh, organization. He was like the heroin king of the mob. P- 
people. Uh, if you Google Herbert Sperling, you'll see his history. Uh, the guy uh, was the main person involved in the dispersion of heroin in New York and for the mob all over the United States. And uh, they he, he had been indicted, went to jail, uh, never indicted for the heroin and all that, but went to jail and, uh, you know, was accused of all kinds of stuff, but in and out and all that. But long story short is, while I was working on the cover, posing as a cane mobsters and uh, ordering shipments and then escaping and fleeing, I made a case. It was called a Salva, Salvatore Lamana case, 20 kilos of heroin. And hang on, right? Let me ask you a quick question. I know that you speak fluent French, but did the, but do you have an accent, though, that yeah. makes the you Canadian sound like accent. Canadian? That's what I was going to say. Oh, yeah. So how do you explain that? Is it because you, as a French speaker, you're actually out of Quebec, right? So Quebec. Montreal. Quebec, Quebec, Quebecois. Quebecois. See, and yeah. a lot of people say Quebec, and it's like, no, 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 it's yeah. Quebec. Quebec. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So Quebecois. So you are, but that's what I'm saying. If that allows you to operate in Paris and not trying to pose as a Frenchman, but you are a French Canadian. Right. Monster. And I spoke French Canadian uh, intentionally because, like, uh, just a quick comparison. Let's say a Frenchman, uh, if he says, you know, you have a nice car, a Frenchman, Parisian French, will say, Vous avez un très, un, un très belle voiture. Okay. Now, a Canadian will say, un beau char. Wow. Big difference. Yeah, Big difference. <laughs> so, at my using my Québécois in France and talking with these people, I would use the Québécois language and they would laugh at me, you know? What, did they, they look down on you because your French wasn't as sophisticated as no, their French? No, because it was very convincing and they didn't think, well, this guy can't be, a, you know, a cop, a, you know, a, a French a narcotics agent. So uh, I had uh, some good backing. And uh, uh, so I made a lot of cases. My first case uh, that ever happened is the French police could not work undercover whatsoever. If what, by, by law or because they just weren't good at it? By, by law. Napoleon Code of Law says that it's an, an entrapment factor if you're undercover. You're entrap and entrapping the person into committing a crime. And when you talk about the French police, I mean, because the, the French basically have a national police force. So you're talking, was it known also as a Sudete? Or was that uh, yeah, DG? Because yes. there was DGSC and DGSI, but that's kind of like their intelligence stuff, right? Right, exactly. Sudete. And what what happened is, uh, is uh, this. Uh, because they couldn't work uh, undercover, they asked uh, the assistance of the uh, our bureau, can you get a French-speaking undercover guy and he can pose and escape every time if we you know get a shipment in and all that so what what happened is uh, i would operate and my first case uh, they said look uh pierre uh we have a guy that uh is dealing with some uh, guys that uh, have op raw opium out of uh, the uh, uh, Moulin Rouge district, and uh, they want to sell 15 kilos of hair, um, uh, raw opium. And he'll arrange for you to meet with them. And so I said, okay. One of the first thing working undercover, and 
Steve, no, and you, Morgan, you probably know this also. No, I, I sucked at undercover. I looked too much like a cop all the time. I was a banker one time. That that, that was my role. That was it. <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, you learn uh, undercover work is very exciting, very dangerous. Steve, you know that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, Steve you know, got a sunburn uh, going down to uh, Turks and Caicos, didn't you, Steve? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I've, I've been there too. Yep. Uh, but uh, what, what happened is, um, uh, you know, I would have to escape. So I met these, uh, this guy and on the Champs Elysees. First of all, one rule in undercover work you are the boss and call the shots. Your supervisor doesn't call the shot. He's there to help you. Some supervisor, unfortunately, never followed that rule. And I lost one of my best friends. And he was one of my uh, class counselor. And Frankie uh, got killed in New York meeting a mobster, shot him in the head. And because his supervisor told him, you're going to meet this guy, blah, blah, blah. He's with the mob. And Frankie said, I don't like it. I don't like the sound of it. And I don't want to, I'm not doing it. And he says, I'm ordering you to do it. He lost his life that night. What's Frankie's last name? Huh? What was Frankie's last name? Frankie Tamillo. Frank Tamillo. So let's, you know what, let's dedicate this episode to Frank Tamillo's memory. Was this part? Was this part of your operation? Was this part of your case, or was this independent of the case you were working no, on? No, this is this is while uh, Frankie was a counselor in my class when I went through agent school, and uh, Frankie was a young, uh, good-looking young man, just as uh, he, he 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 was a good friend, and uh, and he lost his life, and uh, a lot of us cried. And when we heard that he got killed, and uh, so uh, it became uh, a thing for for people working undercover. I worked undercover for almost twenty three years, and uh, we learned a lesson from that. And the undercover agent calls the shot. So I told uh, the French, "I'll meet this guy on the Champs Elysees, where there's a lot of people, and all that," and then. I did my, uh, I always do my homework. I always find, I always check out the area where I'm going to have to meet, find the quickest escape route once an arrest is ordered to be taken down. And I, the guy arrived, showed me, uh, I had a car pull up in front of uh, the, the cafe and, uh, and near the Claridge Hotel, I'll never forget my first case there. And um, my escape route was to, as soon as the cops came in and uh, seized uh, uh, the car and uh, arrested everybody, I took off running, ran through the hotel, I ran out through the back street and took off running. Well, everything went as planned. And I took off running and they seized the opium, arrested the guys. And next thing you know, I'm running through the hotel, and as I'm hitting the, st- the street, I take a, an immediate right. It's a very small street. And uh, I hear this voice yelling, Arrêtez, arrêtez, police, police. 
and there was a cop, uniform cop, chasing me, and he's got a gun. Oh, right. And now I put it into high gear. I was 33 years of age, and I sang, oh, you better put it on a little bit faster. Catch me if you can. And sure as hell, he shot, tried to hit me. Thank God the bullet hit the building. Oh, my gosh. And I, t- I went into high gear. I think I broke a running record and went through various streets and all that. And there was a bar that was not too far from uh, our office that I used to go to. And I ran into this bar and the uh, owner of the bar, he goes, hello, Pierre. And I go, the basement, open it up now. And I went into the basement and he shut the trap door right behind the counter. And you could hear sirens all over the place and all that. And I stayed there for almost three hours. And finally, everything calmed down. Then I walked back to the undercover French office. And there was my director, deputy director, Nick Panella, great guy, God bless him. And uh, the French director who was there. (laughs) And uh, a representative from the embassy was there. And I walked in and I said to Mr. Lemuel, I said, what in the hell is going on? I almost got killed. A guy shot at me. Oh, Monsieur Charette, we're very sorry and all that. <laughs> we never tell these police officers that <laughs> you're, you're the undercover person. I said, we're going to change the plays here <laughs> from here on because I'm enough. not going to get killed over this thing. So that was my first experience. But uh, uh, the French Connection, uh, I worked on it uh, for five years and uh, got deliveries of uh, heroin, uh, made the first hashish oil case ever made in Europe. Well, let's let's hold for there for a second. I want to roll back a little bit and ask you, you're over there for five years. Are you married at the time? Do you have family? Are you just still a single guy cruising the streets of Paris looking for an open cafe to talk to the Parisian women? But what are you doing? Uh, no, I, I was married, and uh, I had a uh, my daughter was born in Paris, and uh, my wife uh, she used to be a narcotics agent. Uh, we brought her in in Fort Lauderdale uh, when I was a detective because uh, we didn't have a female, and she were she was a fingerprint expert, and uh, so she became an undercover uh, agent, and uh, we <clears throat> we hooked up together and. Uh, Got married, and that's when I got transferred to France. Now, what was what did she think about after you told her about getting shot at by the cops? What was how excited was she to remain in Paris or have you do this work? Believe it or not, uh, I never brought my work home to tell my wife what went on. Wait a minute, you didn't tell your wife you got shot at by the French cops? No, no. <laughs> No, not now. She, she learned about it now. That, uh, you know, you mean she didn't the, learn about it through the podcast. Now she knew about it before, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Book, but yeah. Uh, she eventually heard about it, and but she knew that you know we don't talk about it. I don't want to know. And whenever I was outside of the Paris region. I worked in Belgium. I worked in Amsterdam. I worked in Germany undercover. I made cases all over these countries and uh, and all that. And great cops, great agents that were supporting me, DEA agents. There was only seven of us in in Paris. And uh, we, it was a team effort. It was just not 
Pichurette, Pichurette, Pichurette. I did this. I did this. I had the best agent colleagues working together. We did it. And we caused hell all over Europe. And then I went in, uh, I went undercover. Well, hold on before you get past Belgium, because I'm a huge Belgian beer snob. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great, you, great. Well, did you go? So there's a cafe there called the Delirium Tremens Cafe in Brussels. It's the original cafe for Delirium Tremens. It's not too far from the city center. You'll see it down there. I don't know if you ever went there or not, but it's like I was a huge fan of going. I, one of my goals in life is to go visit uh, some of the Trappist monasteries around there and, and you know, go to the source. The Grand Place. Oh, man, I'm telling you, so, so much good stuff. But I have to ask you. Oh, yeah. I have to ask you, though. There was one very famous cop you never mentioned working with, and he was world-renowned. Uh, Inspector Jacques Clouseau of the sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you they, you sent him, they sent him to the... They sent him to the Kansas Highway Patrol. Yeah, day. yeah, har, har, har. Well, he tried to get on. I heard that he couldn't make it on KHP and went to DEA instead. Uh, Mr. Well, you know, it's funny that you just, uh, Morgan, that you just uh, brought that up. Because it's the French Connection. That was the movie back in 68, Robert Duvier. You know, yeah. let's kill Clouseau. Uh, my, my, my favorite uh, character, uh, Clouseau, Inspector Clouseau. Um, we, now that you brought that up, yes, we did have Clouseau. Uh, Clouseau was a supervisor in the French Narcotics Bureau, and we used to call him Clouseau because a uh, uh, great guy, great guy, funny as, as can be. But he would shuffle and walk around on his tiptoes, and I am uh, the Inspector Clouseau, uh, you know, and, and all that, and we, we would – crack up and everybody called him Clouseau so we did have a real Clouseau <laughs> working <laughs> but uh, what what happened is uh, uh, I uh, I worked all over Europe and I made cases uh, you know with the, the Belgian police the uh, uh, um, uh, Amsterdam uh, uh, Surite uh, did a lot of undercover work and uh, one of the things that we did is uh, that uh, I also used to take shipments I, I took a shipment of delivery of 12,000 uh, kilos of uh, uh, hashish in uh, in Amsterdam at the docks And uh, but uh, one of the things that uh, uh, we also worked very close with the military and I was the, like the liaison guy uh, from our office to uh, coordinate. They had an undercover guy that was working in Amsterdam because the military used to go there. And, you know, Amsterdam's got the, the blue light district and all that. And the red light district. And, the, yeah. you know, the, hey, when yeah. you say the military, you're talking about the U.S. military or the military? Of, okay, U.S. military. U.S. military guys from Germany, from all the various uh, uh, things. And they'd go there and, they, and then they'd get involved with them buying drugs and all that. And so this guy would get gather intelligence and also he would order drugs to compare to see what the, the purity was and he gave would give it to us and all that long story short on that is that he called me one day and he goes Frenchie I got a problem I said what's the problem he says uh, got an owner of a nightclub strip joint and he says uh, he's putting out the word that I, I'm a possible uh, uh, undercover agent for the government US government and he says he's trying to ruin my reputation here, uh, you know, because uh, he was working undercover. He says he's going to get me killed. I said, no problem. I says, uh, I'll talk to the boss. So I told the boss, I said, listen, we got a problem. Uh, the CID guy, uh, 
an owner of a club is uh, bad-mouthing him and say, accusing and telling people, don't do anything with this guy. I think he's a, he's a cop. Was undercover. this like in Belgium or, or Netherlands or where was it at? Amsterdam. Amsterdam, okay. So as a result, I say, and the boss said, well, what do you want to do, Frog? I said, I'll tell you what I want to do. I says, uh, we're, uh, me, Kevin, who was my bodyguard undercover, uh, Irish guy, he looked like a football player. And uh, I always had him there as my bodyguard. And, in case uh, he needed to knock somebody out, punch. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> in case you run into a colonel again, right? Uh, yeah, and and he did it on that that night. Long story on that one is that uh, I said we're coming in, and I said uh, we uh, we had one guy in the office uh, that he was kind of an elder gen- gentleman, but spoke uh, broke from customs and then mer- merged over with us, and he spoke French, and great guy, and uh, so. I said, you're going to pose as the godfather. And I said, and I'm going to pose as the godfather, Canadian godfather. And I said, you're going to take us to the club, and we're going to pay him a visit. And I said to Kevin, uh, you're coming in. And uh, Vern Steven also was there. And uh, I said, you guys, we're going to convince this guy that we're the real thing. And the boss said, you know what? He says, where the hell do you come up with all these ideas? I says, hey, I'm used to it. We're going to pay him a visit. And sure enough, um, the godfather, American godfather, he had a black suit on, a white shirt, black tie, and he had uh, sunglasses, and he looked like a monster. He looked like Peter Sellers in the movie Revenge of the People, the Godfather. You know, he's got that big pinstripe suit on in the hat, you know? Yeah. yeah. And as a result, we went to the club, and the club, uh, we showed up, and there was a bouncer at the door. And I turned to Kevin, and I said, uh, he's going to try to block the door. You watch. And so we walked up, and we had the, the CID guy with us. And he puts his arm across the door, and he said, we're closed. And I said to him, I said, uh, let me tell you something. This man here is a member of our family. We're from the States. We want to see your boss, and we're going in. He said, no, you're not. And Kevin, pow, dropped him to the ground. And we walked in. There he is sitting at a table with uh, working on some books, keeping stuff, with a couple of girls there. And he looks up, and we walked in. And Godfather introduces himself, and I introduce myself, and I said, I'm from Canada. This man represents my organization in Canada. And uh, Vince says, and I'm from the United States. And he says, uh, we understand that you have a problem with our representative here. He says, now, we're going to tell you right now. We are a family. I think you know what we're talking about. And if you continue bad-mouthing this gentleman, this nightclub is going to be blown up. You will be killed. And as a matter of fact, here, here's a picture of your wife. Here's a picture of your kids going to school. Here's a picture of your mother. And they will be killed. And his face dropped. 
I'm so sorry and all that. Dude, you were rolling heavy on this one, man. Sounds like Pablo Escobar of Canada. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, so he started uh, almost crying, and he apologized, ordered drinks, and we had drinks. And said, now, you're going to do something. We're going to go to every club here tonight in a car, and you're going to introduce us to these club owners. And you're going to apologize to them saying, I was wrong about our friend here, and these are his family from the state. And they all understood. We had free drinks all night long. By the time we got done, it, we had spent about five hours. And uh, we left, and there was no more problems. So there's certain things that we were doing to help out the army and all that. So it was a, you know, a team effort, but uh, working uh, undercover is totally different. And Steve, you know what I'm talking about. And um, it was my passion. And, and that there was one thing that I tell, and I tell it whenever I uh, teach at academies and if I'm asked to be a guest speaker, there's one thing that, that was told to me by my father and told me, and he told me, he says, Pete, you're going into a, uh, an area that I'm very familiar and I see a lot of corrupt cops because he was a motel owner and all that. And he said, promise me one thing. And I said, what's that, dad? Maintain your integrity. Never sell yourself out. And you know what? I never took a penny. I was offered many bribes, and I'm proud of it. And I said, the greatest thing that an undercover agent and a DEA agent, as Steve will know, is that if you maintain your integrity, you got no problem, and you can walk proudly. There you go. You know, as, and on just a little side note, I was speaking to some students from New England College up in New Hampshire a couple of weeks ago. They were doing their annual uh, trip to D.C. for tours and so forth. Got them a tour of the DEA Academy. And in the Q&A at the end, that's what we talked about, maintaining your integrity. Because it's like, and I told these kids, they thought it was hilarious when I said this. Maintaining your integrity. You give up your integrity, it's like being, it's like being a virgin. You don't get it back. Yep. But you know what? And they all laugh, but they all got the message. Yeah. But uh, when I... Uh, uh uh, you know, uh, I made cases. Uh, uh, I worked undercover. Uh, I had a, an informant come in uh, in Paris, and this case is very significant. One of the biggest cases I ever made, uh, uh, other than Southern Comfort with my guys. But uh, uh, what happened is uh, uh, I had an informant come into the uh, office, and he uh, said, I have a, a friend who lives in Montmartre, uh, near the uh, uh, square there in Montmartre, uh, by the famous uh, uh, cathedral, uh, Art, Artist Square. And uh, he said, uh, uh, he said that uh, he can, uh, his colleagues in Belgrade, block country, uh, are starting to fabricate heroin. They're, they started a lab, and they want to co compete with the uh, uh, take over the French side of the house. And uh, I told uh, Nick, my boss, I said, "Okay." I, he says, uh, "This guy wants to meet and all that." And Nick goes, "For crying out loud, 
Frenchie, he says, we have heard this rumor that possibly, you know, um, in Yugoslavia, they grow opium for uh, pharmaceutical uh, reason. And he said, you know, everybody says, uh, you know, they may be producing and da, 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 da. He says, Frenchie, it's a bunch of bull. We've heard this for several years. I said, Nick, I'm going to meet the guy. He's an old man. I'm going to meet. So I met him. And he said, yes, uh, blah, 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 we discussed. And I told him what, what it is. He said, but I need money to go and meet with uh, my friends there in Belgrade. And he says, uh, I'll have to travel and then come back. And he says, uh, I need $5,000. I said, okay, no problem. I said, but on one condition. You're going to take the train and every time the train stops, you will send me a telegram that you're at such and such location in Germany, crossing Belgium, and et cetera. So I could track them. And, says, so, okay. and Murph, when's the last time we heard anybody say, use telegram as a form of communication on any of our episodes? Yeah, I'm not sure we ever have heard that on Game of Thrones. <laughs> so so uh, I went back to the office, and Nick's, <laughs> I'll never forget Nick's this, Frenchie. This guy just wants money to get back to Belgrade, and he'll you'll never show up again. No, nope. I said Nick, I need five grand. He said nope. I said Nick, I'm going to tell you something right now. Here it is. Gut feeling. I know what I'm doing. You know that. He goes, yes, I know that. He says, all right. I said, if he doesn't come back, I will reimburse you to five thousand dollars. I know that this is real. I got it. I feel it. And as you well know, body language tells you a whole lot if you're a good undercover agent. And I say to, this to undercover guys, body language, you got to watch for various signs, facial expression, et cetera. And he'll tell you, you can tell if he's lying or not. Keeps you alive, I I took a body language course, and trust me, it works. So as a result, he went, sent telegram, came back, called up, and Nick kept saying, you better have five grand waiting for me. So he came back uh, eight days later to Paris, and, and the informant says he's back, meet at the cafe where you met him. And I walked there uh, in with uh, one of my agents, a friend, and uh, we're sitting at a cafe, and all the Frenchmen are having their little cafe and uh, with a little Calvados, uh, you know, in the morning, which I became a Calvados nut. What is uh, what is Calvados? Calvados is uh, uh, apple cognac, and it's uh, it's uh, out of Normandy, and it's very famous. All the Frenchmen, uh, when they go in the cafe in the morning, they'll have Café Calva. And what they do is a small uh, coffee and a shot of Calvados. And one of the French cops, one day we were at this little cafe, and I said to Robert, I said, Robert, I said, what are they doing? I said, they're drinking this thing, Café Calva. He says, Pierre, I'm from Normandy. He says, Calvados, you never had Calvados? I said, no. He says, oh. He says, it'll warm you up and set you uh, for the day. So I, I told the, the waiter, bring me a Café Calva. So he gave it to me. and I He says, you take a, uh, take a sip of coffee and then 
to Calvados with it and then just let it slide down. Well, guys, if you can ask for Calvados, they sell it in the liquor store. If you buy them, I still have my bottle here. I still have my Cafe Calva. It will warm you up and light you up for the day. And they used to call me Mr. Calvados. <laughs> Here comes Mr. Calvados. They and, used to uh, call uh, JP down in Bogota Mr. Aguardiente because that stuff would fire you up too, <laughs> wouldn't it, Murphy? Look <laughs> yeah. his face. That'll yeah. put you down on the ground. So uh, as a re- as a result, uh, you know, uh, he uh, is sitting there, and we sit down, and all of a sudden. People, the old guys are at the counter, and he throws a plastic bag on the table in front of everybody. And he says, here it is. It was a half a kilo of almost white heroin, but it had a little gray tint to it because they weren't using uh, charcoal black uh, uh, to uh, um, make it white. And so I look and I grab the package and I'm looking around and everybody's kind of looking, you know, and I said, I'll be right back. And I went in the bathroom. I had an ampule and I tested it. Bam! I said, son of a bitch. I got it. So now... Hey, and Pete, Pete, dis- dispel a myth for everybody because a lot of people see, even in the movies, they kind of cut the package open. They'll they'll take a – Kojak used to take a taste of it. You know, and stuff. It's like, number one, that gets you killed because you don't know what's in there, right? But n- nobody – That's a no-no. Throw, that's a no-no. <laughs> That'll make you pee hot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. That's against uh, – and if, if we ever had uh, agents uh, – even try and all that, they're off the team and uh, they're they're they been brought up on charges. That's Hollywood crap. All right, so this ampule blows up. It's like what pure, pure, pure. It uh, it uh, it's a little glass ampule. You you break it and then you just take a little uh, pinch of it, put it in there, and then if it's a real uh, heavy high percentage in the eighty, then it immediately turn purple. Uh, almost black, but it'll have a purple tint to it, and you know you've got the stuff. And uh, so, as a as a result, uh, I immediately went to the office. This was on a weekend, on a Saturday, and I went to the office and I called Nick and I called the director and I said, "You guys better come to the office." And I said, "Oh, by the way, Nick, bring me five thousand dollars, will you?" I says, "Because I won the bet." And he <laughs> goes, "What?" <laughs> so they came to the office. We tested it there, and they went ballistic. This is holy crap. Long story short, I ended up going to Belgrade, and I was there behind the block country undercover. With and Belgrade, for folks, that's in Serbia. Ser- yeah. And I had a Canadian, a phony Canadian passport under the name of Pierre Brissett. And I went there with the uh, – with the, uh, uh, the ex-customer guy, he was my, my brother, my Canadian brother. And uh, I had already made arrangements uh, at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal. I had a suite there. And that was my drop, mail drop thing for people to send me uh, messages and telegram, bad guys. So I uh, I had that arranged with the office there and, and the RCMP. So as a result, um, we were there. We negotiated for 20 ki- uh, 15 kilos of uh, heroin. And uh, then I told them, I says, uh, you know, 
send me a message at the hotel that uh, we're celebrating the 15th anniversary of our brothers. Please come because this is, you know, his, his probably his last birthday, blah, blah, blah. And they did. We got the message. And so I told, I told them, I said, look, uh, I'm tied up here in Montreal, but my brother will take the delivery. That was so I could keep my identity going and if they take everybody down then uh you know uh i'm in canada so he did and uh so uh it's all in in the book of the the entire case and that, that was the first heroin seizure ever made in a black country and we uncovered the first heroin lab so uh people went crazy over it and uh, we broke up the operation and the funny side to that one was i got back to paris and uh the boss says uh we got a call from interpol and he says the director of Annapol wants to see you at, in St. Cloud, which was Annapol now is is down in uh, Lyon. In, in Lyon, yeah. And you so, have to say Interpol. You have to say Lyon. It's like you got to Lyon. Lyon. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I go there, and uh, the uh, director, his name was Jean Napote, uh, big, fat, almost identical to. Uh, uh, what's his name uh, uh, from the FBI? The uh, the Jack original Garcia. huh? Jack Garcia. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I I walk into his office and he goes, "Oh, Pierre, how are you?" And all that. So uh, sit down and uh, he says, uh, "I have a problem. I need uh, where we have an international arrest warrant for two Canadian brothers." Pierre Brissette <laughs> and Andre Brissette. <laughs> and I, he says, from Yugoslavia, he said, they just uncovered a heroin lab, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, uh, uh, do you Americans have any information, possibly ever hear the name of Pierre Brissette and Andre Brissette? Yeah, maybe. And I said, Mr. Napote, <laughs> no, not really. No, I, I don't recall, he, Senator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, I, I don't recall the famous phrase. So he uh, looked at me and he said, well, how do I respond to this? Because it's an international uh, uh, emergency arrest if located. I said, if I was you, I'd probably say unable to locate Merci, Pierre. And he says, have a good day. <laughs> he, knew, he knew, didn't he? Yeah, he knew. He knew it was me. <laughs> so, but he said, you know, and he laughed and he said, be careful, please. <laughs> well, that's that's the thing is with your fake passport, right? Or you, I yeah. mean, your, your undercover passport, if you'd gone and used that somewhere, there's a chance if you had used it with that red notice right. out, right, you would have been picked up. Oh, yeah, I would have been picked up and all that. But um, immediately, and this is where liaison and cooperation, and I uh, – I'm a I'm a fanatic for liaison. Uh, you know, agents. We have agents that are sitting back, and they're lucky if they make one case a month or every six months, because they sit in the office. They look good. First of all, they're with the wrong agency. They should be over at the FBI. There you go. There is our one mandatory FBI joke for the uh, podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we love you guys. But, but uh, you know. Uh, I'm a fanatic, and Steve knows this. 
when I uh, uh, was the boss of the uh, uh, Group 10 where Steve was, and John Brown was the supervisor, and JB and I are best of friends, uh, I used to tell guys, and when I teach and I tell them and I say, the biggest mistake agents make, and uh, I've asked to speak at the uh, um, uh, R Academy, but so far there's been no taker. Because uh, I teach undercover for various police departments and acad- uh, academies, and I and I used and I told guys, I says, guys, yeah, I've made a lot of cases, but it was always a team effort. And the one thing that is so dangerous, and there's there's this continuous battle. I don't care if they say, oh, we we get along, we get along. That's a bunch of BS. Uh, you have agents and uh, who are so uh, engrossed in wanting to make a case, but they don't want to tell any other agencies or get any agency involved. As a result, I say, you want to make cases? Or do you want to sit at your desk and look pretty? And I'm a federal agent. That's bullshit. I was a street agent. I grew up and I still feel like I'm a street agent. And, you know, I, if I have a case, and Steve knows this, we immediately contacted Miami, uh, Dade County uh, Sheriff's Department, Miami Beach uh, Police Department, and told them, hey, we got a case going. We want to bring you guys in on it. And they brought them in. And I, I used to tell guys, go and visit these departments don't just sit at your desk and you'll be making cases and everybody say jesus he's making cases because they will refer cases and you work jointly southern comfort biggest cocaine conspiracy in the history of the united states how did it start we had u.s marshal brought a guy that was uh in uh, uh, uh protection and he said, I've been contacted by my, the old guy that I used to transport cocaine shipments for, Harold Rosenthal. He wants to hire me to bring a load in from Tennessee that's coming in from Columbia to bring it to Miami. And because of our liaison, we made the biggest case in history. Two years, we were the transporter for the U.S. mob. $3.8 billion worth of cocaine we brought in for the mob. Hey, now, now let's put a pin in that because that is such a great story. But I, we want to bring you back on that because that is right. that is a whole story deserving of going down the rabbit hole on that one. Because I was reading about Southern Comfort. I was reading about French Connection. Yeah, and no, no, because because that gets into both your books. So this gives us an excuse to bring you back and talk about because this case we, we don't want to cut it short. This case deserves to hop into it because I was reading. Not only did I read about the case, I read the appeal that was made to the U.S. District Court and all of the stuff, and it's like, oh my God, there's a lot of shit going on here. We can't cover in the next few minutes. But, right, <laughs> but let's do this, Pete. Let's do. You got two books, and we want to talk about kind of like what you're doing now. So let's let because you guys can go to Pete Charette Books. That's P E T E C H R. R-E-T-T-E books.com. I didn't spell out books. I figured some of the FBI you guys would be able to spell it right, right either. It's C-H-A-R. That's E-T-T-E. what I said. C-H-A-R-E-T-T-E, didn't I? He's from Kansas. 
Sorry, Pete. I'm reading. I'm reading your damn website. That's what it says on the website. <laughs> yeah, the website. Yeah, that has a lot of pictures there and all that. Yeah. Well, there's a couple good pictures. I'm surprised you put one of your old Vice pictures back in the day of uh, in that black and white. <laughs> oh, with the girls. The girls. The girls. <laughs> Let me just give you a heads up. There's not a lot to see there. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. That, that one you had to let her go for lack of evidence. But but you got a book called One Hell of a Ride, which by the way was a finalist in the Independent Author Network for outstanding. Uh, first nonfiction, and then one hell of a ride too. Which this is the one we'll get into next time with you about talk about uh, Operation Southern Comfort. But let's well, talk. Go ahead. Excuse, I don't, Morgan. I don't want to uh, cut you off. But uh, now I just got another finalist award for number two. Ooh, you can cut right. us off for that. Congrats. So, <laughs> well, that tells you something too, because anytime you kind of, I mean, you're an independent, you're writing your book. Now, are you self-publishing or did you go through a publisher? No, I have a, a, a publisher. Yeah. Okay. But that, that's a hell of a lot that, that is a but great it's on, award. It's, it's, it's on Amazon and all that. And also there's uh, three, uh, no, four trailers on YouTube under one hell of a ride. They're like three minute trailers with music and all that and so uh, we're gonna now we're gonna put it all on there but let's let's kind of close this out by talking about you talk about what are you doing now so you've been teaching undercover and and obviously uh, conversating with uh, Mark Wahlberg uh, tell him I said hello tell him remember, <laughs> remember the dude who interrupted your phone call with your wife in Las Vegas at Wally's that was me <laughs> well uh, what I'm doing now is uh, I'm doing a lot of appearance. Uh, I've done uh, numerous podcasts. Uh, they're on YouTube and all that. Uh, uh, I've, I've done, I think, probably seven podcasts. And then I'm doing this with you guys uh, today, which I'm honored. really am, and uh, I appreciate that. Um, also, uh, uh, I do uh, appearances, books, uh, signing, and then uh, now also uh, now some people have tried to uh, have contacted me that the uh, companies want me to come as a guest speaker at their annual meetings and all that. So I'm available to do, uh, to, to do that also. And I got, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm very honored. And Steve, uh, I mentioned it to you. Uh, uh, I'm honored uh, right now. The Mob Museum in Vegas, uh, they uh, have approached me and uh, they uh, uh, <clears throat> want to do exhibits, two exhibits, one on Southern Comfort and one on uh, the French Connection. And I'll be side by side with you guys. <laughs> According to, to what Jeff told me, spoiler alert, everybody, Pablo's dead. Uh, don't go down there. <laughs> Elvis is dead and Pablo is dead. Two things you got to know when you go to Vegas. Yeah, pra- Pablo used to supply us the, the cocaine on Southern Comfort. Well, yep. I'll talk about that t- to you. We're going to have to talk about that. But hey, well, first of all, and, and the other thing too, let, let me let me bring this to an end. I, I pulled up the, the write-up, and there's two of them actually. So there's Special Agent Frank Tumillo uh, into watch, uh, which was October 12th, 1972. During that time, another special agent, which was a Special Agent Thomas Devine, was also shot during that. Yeah. He was, was a supervisor. He was he was paralyzed and died from his injuries on September 25th, 1982, into watch. So uh, for Frank and uh, Thomas, I mean, this episode is dedicated to two guys. And look, man, it's still to this day, we can see and we can hear. Look, I got friends' names on the wall. You do. I mean, it's it's a it, to this day, it's still like it still gives you goosebumps and makes you think about that stuff. 
It does. This is this is one of the most dangerous jobs you can ever do. And and we get on here and we have fun talking to each other and you know, we bust chops and and uh and talk about the exciting things, but the one thing you can never forget is this will end your life. You know, the uh I I was honored. I had forgotten about writing a uh the introduction form. a testimonial yep. for yep. your book, Pete. And I was just reading it and and everything <laughs> I can't believe everything I wrote in there is absolutely true to this day. You are a true American hero, a true American patriot. Uh, you know, just like I said in the in the testimonial, you'll never hear Pete say that about himself, but that's the mark of a true hero. They won't call themselves a hero. So for you know well, and let me quote of, uh, you let me quote you on that, Murph. In today's I, society, the word hero is thrown around freely with little regard to the actions or circumstances involved. But Pete earned that title, although he'll never use that title or admit it. But isn't that one of the traits of a true hero? He gives credit to everybody else and not himself. Absolutely. So just, you know, having you on here and having you as a a longtime friend, uh, I think we brought you down to Bogota after you helped me get the job down there. We won't talk about that because I'm not sure the statute of limitations has run out on everything, but uh, we had a good trip, didn't we? (laughs) (laughs) We had a hell of a ride, Steve. Yes, we did, and and thus the book. So highly That will be the subject of Pete's third book. (laughs) Uh, As a a matter of fact, uh, I'm exploring something now that there's going to be more books coming out, but it's going to be fictional, but it's going to be very, very uh, exciting. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. It's a true honor to have you on here, Pete. So thank you so much. And we definitely want to get you back to talk about Southern Comfort. You're around here to talk about thankful, you know, obviously too thankful for your service. This is me Absolutely. saluting you, saying thank you, Inspector Clouseau. You were the real <laughs> Inspector Clouseau, crazy like a fox. Is he crazy or is he? So, but you, but you did such great work. We appreciate this. And folks, one last time here, make sure you go to Pete Charette Books, and I'm going to spell it out for Murph so he doesn't think I'm missing it. That's P E T E C H A R E T E Books. Dot com Get one hell of a ride and one hell of a ride, too. We'll have those books posted on our website. So, Pete, this is us saluting you, saying thank you. Thank you so much for your service. Don't you go anywhere. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. Yeah, I do know what you're talking about. We won't tell you what we were talking about, but it's alternate pronunciations of poutine. Uh, anyway... Guys, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Pete, uh, I mean, again, what I love, too, is he's got that outrageous kind of, you know, you can tell a little bit of that friendship. But that's why it works so well for him over in Paris, because he was a French-Canadian mobster yep. doing business over there. He understood the language. And look, i got to tell you, too, I think one of the things you would not expect is a DEA, you expect DEA agents to maybe look the same or talk, you know, be English and stuff. Uh, but, you know, but you got Javier, right? You got uh, Abe Perez. You've got all of the different folks we've talked to, but then nobody was ever, that's why they took him because he was the only fluent French speaker and they needed him right away. So he bypassed the traditional weight to work overseas and he got there pretty darn quick, PDQ. Yeah. And you know what I love about Pete? I mean, all these years he's been, he's been retired for a while now and you could tell as he's telling his story, how excited he still gets over this. You know, that's when... That's Morgan. I talk about this, but like we talked about the Nashville shooting, uh, the two officers that took down the shooter at the Covenant School. As I'm watching those videos, my heart starts racing. I'm starting to sweat because you still get excited by the cases, and you can tell Pete was in the right job. He was born to be a police officer, law enforcement professional. He still has the excitement when he tells the stories, and that's why we're going to bring him back because he's got some more great stories to tell us. 
Yeah. Well, if you guys like that, if you like those stories, head on over to Apple and Spotify. Hit those five stars. Let us know what you think. It's magic. It's Disney. It's David Copperfield, David Blaine, your favorite street magic. We don't know how it works. We just know it does. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for information about the show and to get the links to Pete Charette's books, Hell of a Ride and Hell of a Ride 2. Uh, covers a lot of the stuff we're talking about. Um, and that we'll be going into as well. So we'll be adding it. We'll be constantly updating that. Also, follow us on that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Uh, and also uh, make sure you head on over to Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. I'm telling you, we got a lot of good stuff on there. And you got to go, if nothing else, join, listen to it just for the Narcometer review this month. And you get the Narcometer review at the uh, Guardian of the Realm or Warden of the Throne level where we talk about the the French Connection movie with Gene Hackman and Roy Scheider, not Rob Schneider, Steve. Steve well, thought it was Rob right. Schneider, the comedian. No, he wasn't it's born then. Right. Roy Scheider, no, different. And uh, where we talk about that. So head on over there and do that. But hey, guys, most importantly, we thank you guys for your support. Um, yes. We really do. Um, and we're doing some different things here. We've got a new advertisers we're working with. You're going to hear some of that, especially in this episode. So guys, we want to thank you once again, as always, for spending your time with us and for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous, and French-friendly game of all, Game of Crimes. 